This is episode 250 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Blastoid Development and Implantation with Dr. Nicola Rebron. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and room back with another episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, as our guest, we have Dr. Nicola Rivron from the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology in Austria. He's on the show today to talk about his groundbreaking research on blastoids and self-organization. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news. That's coming right up. But first, we'd like to remind our listeners about ESC and IPSC News, one of stem cells' free weekly scientific newsletters. ESC and IPSC News summarizes all of the latest research, news, jobs, and events in ESC and IPSC research and delivers it right to your inbox every Wednesday. Save time and keep current with ESC and IPSC News, and you can subscribe for free at www.eslnews.com. Talking about groundbreaking, Arun, I'm leading off the roundup today with a truly groundbreaking breaking watershed moment in our field. This is, of course, the results that were recently announced by Blue Rock from their phase one study. Results were presented at the International Congress of Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders that was in Copenhagen, Denmark here at the end of August. Um, And, you know, this is, everyone's been waiting for these results for, since the beginning, really. uh, the culmination of decades of work, and it's a story about Bemdana Procell. I mean, first we got to talk to Blue Rock about, or anybody about how they formulate the names here. I'm going to struggle to say that a few times during this roundup story, so bear with me. But Bemdana Procell, it's this investi- investigational cell therapy that's meant to replace uh, dopaminergic neurons that are lost in Parkinson's disease, and it's made up of these dopaminergic neuron precursors derived from human embryonic stem cells. And then they are surgically implanted into the brain where they can form, uh, reform neural networks and restore motor and non-motor function to patients. And, you know, there's a huge need here. Estimated more than 10 million people worldwide suffering from Parkinson's disease, uh, about a million of those living in the United States alone. And we know there's no cure that's effective and the treatments that are out there, they kind of lose efficacy over time. Um, so this phase one study was a multi-center, multi-site, open-label, non-randomized and non-controlled study that was focused on an initial cohort of 12 patients that were divided into two different dose levels. Uh, the first level was a cohort A, five subjects that received a dose of 0.9 million cells for caudate patamen, which is where the cells are injected. The second cohort was seven subjects, reaching a total of 12, and those received triple the dose, 2.7 million cells per caudate patamen. And uh, the assessments of these patients were meant to progress over the course of two years. This is one year out where we're looking at uh, the primary objective, demonstrating safety and tolerability. Um, And that goal objective was met in all 12 participants. Um, both the low and high dose with no serious adverse events. There were two 
adverse events that were reported that were unrelated to the cells. One was a seizure that was attributed to the surgical procedure. One was a patient got COVID. I mean, can't blame anybody for that. Uh, uh, both of those resolved without any sequelae. Uh, pet imaging, and this is big, uh, showed that there, there was evidence of cell survival and engraftment in both the low and high dose cohorts at a year out. And uh, efficacy, functionally, uh, this is the most exciting to me, using this thing called the Hauser Diary, uh, which categorizes patients as being in the on state uh, when their symptoms are controlled, the off state when they're experiencing a worsening of their symptoms. So in the high-dose cohort, the patients uh, reported an average improvement of 2.16 hours in the on state, and that corresponded with... Uh, 1.91 hours in the off state. So that made sense. And here's the key for me. In the low dose, uh, there was also an improvement, but it was about a third of almost exactly a third of the efficacy, 0.72 hours reported uh, in the on state. That is without dyskinesia and uh, corresponding decrease of 0.75 hours in the off state. So intuitively lines up for me, you know, you're getting a third, the dose of cells, you're getting a third, the efficacy. I know it's, I'm oversimplifying there, but there was also this, uh, objective measure or more objective measure from the movement disorder society called the unified Parkinson's disease rating scale that showed similar, uh, reduction of, of symptoms in these patients, uh, and scaling similarly better in the in the high dose cohort and uh, improvement, but not as great in the low dose cohort. So for me, this is a home run. All you can expect from a phase one study. I mean, notwithstanding, they walk out of the clinic and never have dyskinesia again. But that's uh, pretty far fetched. I think showing any improvement at this point is a, a major milestone. And of course. Uh, everybody, I think, is really excited about Blue Rock planning already underway for phase two of the study that's going to be enrolling patients in the first half of 2024. So right around the corner. And, you know, I can't uh, uh, embellish these results enough. This is such a, a watershed moment in our field, as I mentioned before, and it's so great to have it be positive. You know, the fact that we actually have some efficacy results here, not just safety and tolerability, I think is really going to engender a lot of enthusiasm and keep momentum going uh, for other clinical trials as well as this one. Arun, I've been waiting for this moment forever. Uh, what are you thinking? Yeah, this uh, you said it all. This is really just a watershed moment in the field. I mean, so many years of incredible basic science work leading to the development of this particular therapy from, you know, from originally from Lorenz's lab and then the work at Blue Rock. Uh, really incredible to see no major safety issues at all in these 12 participants in this low dose. And I think the other thing, and again, this isn't necessarily my area of expertise, but like you alluded to, seeing some dosing related responses in these patients is also really promising because maybe in the future, even if you increase the dose even further, then you'll get an even better amelioration of the disease phenotype here. So that's really cool to see. And 
I mean, it's one thing to to announce the the results here. I really want to see the um, uh, inevitable, inevitable publication that comes out of some of this initial data, and I'm sure it's going to be coming very soon. Um, and of course, looking to the future and uh, thinking about that phase two study and seeing how that's going to go. I mean, the you, you just want to keep seeing this thing scale up and up and up and seeing the safety and the efficacy ultimately uh, improve and be consistent with the scaling of the trial. So can't wait to see where this goes. Yeah, I agree with you there. I can't wait to see with more granularity uh, the distribution of the efficacy results across patients. You know, you're injecting something into the brain uh, cells. It's a live product. Uh, you can't expect it to behave the same way in, in each individual case. So I'm really interested to see the distribution there. And by the way, like we're talking about a neurodegenerative disease. So the fact that these patients are improving is a big deal. You know, they're, they're not just not getting worse. Our, our static, they're getting better. And this is a trial where they're going to continue to monitor these patients for another year after this. So I I hope to see, you know, even, I, I guess, consistent, uh, maybe improvement uh, beyond the, the efficacy already, but at least a, a static um, result. Uh, these patients aren't going to get worse. Moving on to another very clinically relevant story. This is actually uh, coming from the New England Journal of Medicine. I, I alluded to in the previous story where I like to see the clinical trials being published, you know, the the Apple actual publications and the raw data of the clinical trials in, uh, in, in journals just to validate that um, what we're saying in these press releases actually holds up in, in a publication. And here is a, a New England Journal article. Uh, from a, a Novartis-associated study using CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing of the HB1 and HB2 promoters to actually treat sickle cell disease. And certainly treating sickle cell disease using gene therapy and gene editing approaches, it's not a, a brand new concept. This has been done in, in various capacities over the last few years, initially using like lentiviral-based approaches for, for correcting uh, you know, CD34-positive hematopoietic stem cells, ex vivo, and then retransplanting them back into the, the patients. This is really cutting edge because, of course, you're incorporating CRISPR into the equation and perhaps having a more specific targeted editing approach um, for restoring and ameliorating some of the, the clinical phenotypes associated with sickle cell, which is, of course, such a, a painful and devastating disease, um, predominantly affecting African-Americans, but also other populations as well. So we know that we know the, the backstory of sickle cell by now, right? It's caused by this defect in the beta globin subunit of adult hemoglobin. And um, you had the sickling condition creating deformed red cells that hemolyze and cause all sorts of downstream symptoms and really painful phenotypes, which lead to progressive organ damage and ultimately early death, right? And the thought is you can elevate fetal hemoglobin levels in, in red cells to actually protect against some of the complications of sickle cell disease. So there's this, this technology, this um, cell product. OTQ923, again, developed in conjunction with Novartis, which is using CRISPR-edited CD34-positive hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells, um, uh, which specifically have been, the, the CRISPR is targeting the HB, HPG1 and HB2 uh, gamma globin gene promoters. And this is the fetal version of the of the, the globin subunit of you know hemoglobin. So basically the thought is you can target the 
upstream promoters of the HBG1 and HBG2 to basically knock out a regulatory region which ultimately reactivates the fetal globin gene, right? And that's their approach to uh, alleviate some of the clinical manifestations of the disease. So turn off the adult problematic version of hemoglobin and turn on the uh, the fetal gamma globin subunit, okay? And so they, they talked about how they did the upstream to actually identify the best guide RNA that can be used to specifically target those promoter regions upstream of HBG1 and HBG2, these gamma globin gene promoters, right? And so they found this guide RNA 68 after doing this huge guide RNA screen, right? Which is great. They did a bunch of preclinical uh, validation that that's the best guide RNA for their targeting approach. And then, you know, the, the crux of the paper, and again, the major reason why this is a New England Journal article, and we don't cover too many of these uh, New England Journal approaches or, or publications, right? Um, you got to put these things into patients. That's the whole point of, a, you know, publishing something in New England Journal is, uh, you know, the results of a clinical trial, right? So they enrolled patients, uh, participants with severe sickle cell disease in a multi-center phase one clinical trial study, you know, analogous to what the Blue Rock folks are doing, very early phase safety and efficacy, uh, safety mostly, uh, looking at the safety of this OTQ923 CRISPR-edited CD34 positive uh, cell product, right? So what do they find? They found that one, like like I talked about, the, the guide RNA-68, they validated that that was the best guide RNA for their targeting approach. And in the three in the study, there's only three participants here that they're talking about. Only three participants who actually received the autologous OTQ923 after their mild ablative conditioning. Um, and they followed these individuals who had severe sickle cell for six to 18 months. And importantly, at the end of the follow-up period, all the participants had the engraftment and the stable induction of the fetal hemoglobin caused by, again, the, the CRISPR-based modification. There was an increase in the fetal hemoglobin as a percentage of the total hemoglobin, uh, going up, you know, 19 to 27 percent. Um, the fetal hemoglobin um, broadly was distributed in the in the red blood cells, and ultimately, and the most important thing here is the manifestations of sickle cell disease were decreased during the follow up the follow up period. So. That's that's the most important thing for the patients. That of course they make they feel better, uh, their disease phenotypes are are alleviated, and that the um, you know on the basic science side of it, this is a really good study reflecting the power again of CRISPR in in vivo modification, uh, modifying these CD34 positive hematopoietic stem and progenitor cells to to do what you know ultimately they're supposed to do which is to alleviate the symptoms of this severe severe sickle cell disease um really kind of an ingenious based uh crispr modification approach of these gene promoters uh, all you got to do you didn't have to do any sort of correction here this was just using a guide rna as like i've said before the analogy is taking a shotgun to the genome and just knocking out the portion of the HPG1, HPG2 gene promoters um, that are normally involved in the silencing of those two genes. So I think because it's not an HDR or homology-directed repair approach, it's much easier to do. Uh, anytime you involve correction of a, a genomic, genomic region, these approaches get a lot more complicated. So I think low-hanging fruit in some way, right? But ultimately... The most important thing is showing the alleviation of the, the clinical phenotypes for this really 
devastating disease in sickle cell. Yeah, man, whatever works, right? And, uh, you know, I, I love hematopoiesis. We all know that. But uh, this this idea, I think, is why I, I fell in love with not just hematopoiesis, but hematopoiesis as a, a, a means of therapy. You know, when Stu Orkin was kicking around this idea early days, it was about when I was coming into the field. And I remember falling in love with just that idea of the hack. It made me really appreciate the what, an idea that has recurred over and over in my career and just is generally, a, 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 I think, a, a very closely and, and uh, a treasured element of, of science and innovation, which is hacking the system, right? It, it's, it's, it can't fix the adult globin, reactivate the fetal globin. I thought that was such a beautiful idea. And since then, there's been a lot of variable ways to achieve that goal, you know, a lot of ways to skin that cat. Um, and not, not even to mention the more classic genetic therapies for treating sickle cell. So as you said, this, this is kind of low hanging fruit, uh, less complex, I think more uh, efficient, I guess. Um, uh, my question now is with all these different ways of skinning the cat, all these different hacks, uh, which is going to rise to the top. There's gotta be a point at which, you know, one of these therapies becomes the, the, dominant modality just from like i guess a, a economic commercial standpoint um and back to your point i wonder if it's going to be this fetal globin activation as opposed to like a homology directed repair of the sickle cell characteristic because yeah i mean it's got to be cheap and as we've talked about also on the show you got to get in there early you don't want someone living with the sequelae of sickle cell their whole life and the and the inflammation that goes with it it may degrade the hematopoietic system so anyone with sickle cell with a cheap therapy could get in there early uh, and have a life where they're spared disease and associated sequelae yeah whatever works i'll take this it looks like it's very promising yeah definitely very promising and i think one of the negatives perhaps negatives but of course you have to do these studies the right way right the, these these trials take time right so developing any sort of cell therapy genetic modification gene therapy whatever you have to go through the rigors of clinical trials and you know this study this publication is likely a decade in the works right and certainly there are newer technologies in addition to crispr cas9 which can you know perhaps modify these cell products even more specifically than crispr can we know we know that's possible crispr in a lot of ways crispr cas9 is old school now which is amazing to think about because it's just that technology has only been around at least in the everyday use for about 10 years now but now we're talking about adenine base editors you know the prime editing approaches which inevitably are going to also be used for some of these correction approaches it's just it's in the pipeline it just takes time right perhaps because the this approach has shown so much promise those downstream approaches are going to be accelerated i don't know to some extent right ultimately we have to see what's going to win out or if this is really going to be iterative you know there's initially there was a lenti approach and that that worked so that became mainstream but then crispr came out that became mainstream and that's that's the the gold standard whatever who knows what's going to happen 10 years from now you can't hope to do all of these trials at exactly the same time because of course the technology is emerging at different times um but we'll see you know that's uh, i think regardless just having a lot of 
arrows in the quiver, so to speak, for treating sickle cell is is a good thing. Yeah, CRISPR dated. Need to come up with something <laughs> new. <laughs> uh, but you know, along those lines, I got a segue there. I got the next thing here, uh, which is adenine base editing using CRISPR. Um, maybe a little bit more current uh, for your taste there, Arun. But um, generally what we're talking about here and what we've been talking about and are going to be talking about for, for the foreseeable future is precision medicine, personalized medicine, right? Uh, and in this case, not just treating the patient and their specific disease, uh, specific mutation in the case of sickle cell, um, but I got a story about treating a patient-specific cancer right? Not just the patient, but their specific cancer. And that's CAR-T. There's all these targeted immunotherapies based on a lot of different immunomodulations. But CAR-T, I think, is above all um, the most romantic to me. The idea of this, you know, soldier you send out to go hunt down the, the, the tumor cells. I love it. Um, and it's been, you know, used widely, clinical trials for solid tumors now too, but it, it's revolutionized the treatment of hematologic uh, malignancies, you know, pretty much overnight changing the, the, the way we treat, not overnight, as Arun alluded to, these things take years, but has truly revolutionized the treatment of hematologic malignancy with high rates of cures uh, for cancers that are typically been resistant to traditional chemo. Um, but the, there is some challenges there, right? When you're treating uh, the tumor cells with CAR-T, these hematologic malignancies, they got to be specific to the cells, right? So if it's B-cell leukemia lymphoma, you have CD19. If it's myeloma, you have BCMA. If it's uh, T-cell leukemia or lymphoma, you have CD7. For AML, it's CD33, right? And that's been working, um, but uh, there's some challenges technically, but also from like a economic uh, kind of drug development standpoint, it's not very efficient, right? And you're also limited in terms of antigens because you got to have antigens as, as a room. We always talk about the off-target stuff, right? You got to have antigens that are going to be present specifically the tumor, but not going to be in other vital places where the CAR-T will wipe you out, uh, the good cells, right? So um, that's a challenge, you know, you got to have something that's clinically tolerable. Um, and, you know, that's not always going to be the case for every tumor. Uh, so uh, as an alternative, at least with hematologic malignancy, there's this idea floating around of, of attacking just a, a pan antigen, in this case, CD45. It's expressed on the surface of pretty much all hematopoietic cells, right? But of course, because it's expressed in all cells, if you have a CAR-T that's targeting it, it's going to kill all the good cells as well as the bad cells. Also, it's going to kill themselves. The T cells express CD45. So the T cell targeting CD45 are going to commit what's called fratricide. Um, so, all right, how do we get around this? Uh, well, uh, work from Carl June, uh, who is one of the OGs in, in this approach, going to win the Nobel Prize for sure, uh, along with Sar Gill, both at UPenn. Um, they built on this prior work, all right? And this is uh, in treatment of AML, right? So AML uh, uh, is targeting CD33, but CD33 is present on CAR T cells, right? So how do you treat the, the the tumor without having this fratricide, what, what they did in that case is that they knocked out CD33 in the CAR T cells. So the CD, there wasn't the fratricide element. Okay. Could you do that with CD45? No, 
right? Because if you knock out CD45, you get impaired T cell development and function. Um, and also, by the way, severe combined immunodeficiency, also known as SCID. You don't want that, right? So they had to come up with a nuanced approach. And I thought this was really brilliant uh, conceptually. What they did here is instead of deleting CD45 altogether, they used CRISPR base editing uh, to install or to modulate uh, the CD45 epitope, all right? So they, they put in this mutation um, that changed the, the antigenicity pretty much of CD45, right? So CD45 was still functional, but it wasn't, it didn't look like the uh, native CD45. So the CAR T cells didn't attack it. They call this approach epitope editing. Um, and they used it with great success. They, they showed that these epitope edited CAR T cells, they didn't kill each other, no fratricide there. Um, and they were also effective in treating AML, B cell lymphoma, T cell leukemia. So they could attack pretty much all the different hematological malignant cells that are out there, or multiples that they tested here. Um, and critically here, the, the native or the epitope edited hematopoietic stem cells uh, were not attacked by the CAR T cells. So you could engraft those cells, they would persist and differentiate in vivo into the whole complement of hematopoietic derivatives, but the CAR T cells wouldn't attack them. So the idea here is you're effectively changing your entire hematopoietic complement um, or introducing a, a new uh, hematopoietic complement while also introducing the CAR T cells that are going to wipe out every other blood cell in your body, including the malignant cells. I think that's a really brilliant conceptual advance and could create a, a more off-the-shelf, I guess, product, which will be patient-specific in every case, but it won't have to be tailored to each specific malignancy. It can just treat blood uh, as a whole. So uh, I think that not just in the blood, but maybe this uh, approach could be applied toward other organs, although not as easily, because you can't exactly replace your native uh, organ complement with epitope editing. But I, I thought a neat uh, conceptual advance, a nice hack following from your hack there, the fetal globe in the room. What do you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting idea. This I think this idea of epitope editing is a really unique gene editing strategy so you can protect cell therapies from these like you know from targeting themselves and all these other applications but there's i mean they mentioned in the discussion there's potentially other applications and you know you could use the platform for for like in vivo selection of genome edited hscs without genotoxin conditioning or maybe even that they allude to this eradication of the latent hiv reservoir so that's a really powerful application but um and then they're thinking about other applications of this epitope editing to like other targets that we've actually talked about recently cd117 or maybe cd123 so um really cool technology here and again, I've mentioned it before. I feel like we've become an offshoot of the immunology podcast here. <laughs> We're covering so many of these stories now related to, you know, uh, hematopoietic stem cells, you know, editing of these things that maybe we should just merge into one grand 
podcast, just the podcast, right? But hey, it's just a reflection of how you know important these two fields are and how well intersected these two fields are, especially in the clinical applications too, right? The the story I previously talked about was a, a clinical trial of HSCs and edited HSCs. And inevitably, this is going to move towards uh, clinical trials as well, this epitope editing approach. I also think we need to have David Liu on the show at some point. And we talk about all of these prime editing, base editing based approaches that they're working on over there in Boston. So Dr. Liu, if you're listening to this, we'd love to have you on. Yes, we would. A lot to talk about as all these editing technologies become so pervasive. Um, but I just will remind you, Arun, as someone who loves the blood and also loves the immunology podcast, that it is the original stem cell and the first stem cell therapy. So I think there's plenty of stories for us to share. And uh, I, I would love a merger for one of these shows. We could make it like a five-hour bonanza of everything stem cells and immunology. Can't wait for that. You're going to have to slate that one for episode 251, perhaps. <laughs> let's see. Maybe let's, you know, back off in the merger talks. We'll, we'll, we'll stay in our own realms. But hey, I love crossover episodes. So, you know, Brenda and Jason, if you're listening, love to have you on at some point, in addition to Dr. Liu, of course. Moving on to the last paper of the roundup for today. This is not related to HSCs for once. This is a reprogramming story, a basic reprogramming story, but I think has a lot of really interesting implications here. This is a, you know, I'm I'm actually sort of shocked here. I didn't realize that reprogramming stories 10 years later, 15 years after IPS reprogramming was first described, I didn't realize they would still have enough in them to actually merit a nature study to come out of it, right? But hey, this is super important and, uh, important and I'm not belittling, belittling this at all. I was just a little surprised that even reprogramming in this day and age can can uh, can merit this level of, of publicity and this level of uh, caliber of study. But it also is a reflection of just how important and, and the uh, the rigor of this approach that they took here in this particular story. This is coming out of the labs of Jose Polo and Ryan Lister, right? First author here is um, Sam Buckbury. This is a, a, uh, a study looking at reprogramming and how it could be improved even further to the level of having iPSCs truly on par with human embryonic stem cells, okay? And we're talking about epigenomics specifically. IPSCs, I think, you know, we've run into this fallacy in the modern stem cell age that IPSCs and ESCs are equivalent. And for all intents and purposes for the downstream, they are largely equivalent, but epigenetically, they're still quite different, okay? So we know that cells undergo this huge epigenome reconfiguration when they're reprogrammed to IPSCs from somatic cells. It's just like the the... You know, the saying is they go back in time, right? That's a simplification of the fact. But iPSC and embryonic stem cell gene epigenomes are still very, very different, even if their downstream production of, say, cardiomyocytes, whatever, is comparable and their efficiency of differentiation isn't comparable. But epigenomically, these cells are still really, really different. So first, what they did here, you know, first they did a just really deep, deep characterization of the epigenetic differences between iPSCs and uh, embryonic stem cells, human iPSCs and human embryonic stem cells, did a bunch of genome-wide DNA demethylation or methylation profiling uh, through the primed and naive reprogramming of human somatic cells to iPSCs. 
And they found that there are reprogramming-induced epigenetic aberrations that emerge midway through primed reprogramming, which is pretty much what almost everybody out there does is primed reprogramming. But DNA methylation begins early in naive reprogramming. So using that knowledge and using that amazing basic science skill set, uh, data set, they developed what they call TNT, really a bombshell here, pun intended, I guess, right? Transient naive treatment or TNT-based reprogramming strategy that, I mean, ultimately it's hoping to emulate the embryonic epigenetic reset, ultimately you know, making iPSCs that are very similar epigenetically to embryonic stem cells, okay? And the thing I really liked about this, and I didn't read super deep into the paper, but I just wanted to, to emphasize this fact. What they did to actually create iPSCs that are on par epigenetically with human embryonic stem cells is just modulate the media in which they were placed during the reprogramming process. So they had an, a naive state media and they had a prime state media. And just by modulating the amount of time the cells were in the media, that's how you got these epigenetically superior iPSCs on par with the embryonic stem cells, okay? And then they demonstrated that these TNT iPSCs um, can, you know, differentiate very similarly to the human embryonic stem cells, that the uh, differentiation efficiencies are similar. And um, it can actually, in some situations, improve the differentiation of iPSCs derived from different cell types. Um, and so their ultimate conclusion is this, this TNT reprogramming corrects epigenetic memory and certain aberrations like transposable element overexpression, that sort of stuff that's present in iPS reprogramming traditionally. So this TNT reprogramming makes these cells epigenetically superior that are what they say molecularly and functionally more similar to human embryonic stem cells than conventional iPSCs that we're using every day in our lab. And then they end, you know, by looking to the future and thinking that, you know, if TNT reprogramming is really making these improved iPSCs that are epigenetically on par with the ESCs, then perhaps there's a new standard now. There's a new standard for using these iPSCs for downstream biomedical and therapeutic applications, maybe for uh, clinical trials like what we alluded to earlier, or these you know TNT iPSC-derived cell products that maybe Blue Rock could use in the future. Who knows? Maybe they'll be even better at making the, the dopaminergic neurons or whatever cell types that you want to use for clinical applications. So you know, I just wanted to reemphasize again. I'm not belittling this study at all. I was just surprised that we're, we're we we have uh, you know in, enough that we're learning about the programming process even now in 2023 to 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 have a, a paper and in, in the caliber of a Nature paper. But there's just so much in here, and I think the implications here are so important that it's definitely worthy of of this level of publication. So. Kudos to the Lister and uh, Polo groups for this amazing, amazing, amazing work. Yes, explosive is, is another word for it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, like you, when I started reading this, was uh, was like, oh, I can't believe there's still anything left in the tank with these reprogramming groups. But yeah, then, you know, as I read it, one, I was impressed with, as you uh, reviewed there, the power of just observing the system and then having this relatively, I guess, minor intervention that's, you know, no barrier to entry for labs out there. So it can be widely adopted. Um, I, I'm, I guess that's how it gets to this caliber of a story. It's something 
that is simple, uh, but has, uh, I'd say, uh, outsides ramifications. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, considering our guest today and, and how we're moving into this kind of embryo modeling space where to date, no one has been able to create a, a blastoid or other type embryo model that could actually generate a live born and or uh, fertile offspring. Um, I think there is still some some things to learn. You know, I, I know the gold standard is, you know, the tetraploid complementation and, and that's not in human, but in mouse, it's been very well established that these cells have the capacity uh, to undergo tetraploid complementation, demonstrating their true pluripotency. But there are still some open questions regarding whether or not those cells uh, faithfully uh, mirror their physiological correlate from an epigenomic standpoint. And, and that may be relevant to, you know, disease modeling or whatever else um, in the future. So I think it's important uh, that this study was was done. I think it's great that there's now a really easy recipe out there for people to kick around um, and test whether or not this new explosive recipe can uh, actually engender any kind of phenotypic differences or, or capabilities amongst uh, the ES-derived uh, products. So uh, it, I think it's a great story. Uh, I, I never thought I'd read another reprogramming story again in nature, but here we are. <laughs> yep, here we are in 2023. TNT is the wave of the future, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I thought was you know, potentially interesting here. And they didn't really characterize this differentiation in this paper. They looked at a bunch of cell types, you know, from these TNT IPSCs, like the, the cardiac and the endoderm differentiation approaches. As we know, and as you know, the epigenome is so critically important for the production of bona fide gametes, right? Sperm and egg, right? That, And that's certainly been a huge limitation in, in, in making bona fide gametes from human-induced pluripotent stem cells is perhaps that epigenomically, epigenetically, whatever, right now the cells we're using as the cell population to make those cells, it's just not right, right? And so maybe these TNT iPSCs are, are, are the key to, to making those bona fide germ cells from, uh, from human iPS cells. So uh, we'll see what these folks do next with this really explosive technology, right? Uh, pun intended, I suppose. Yes, I'm going to I'm going to really bury the pun here by saying, you know, I've been outspoken that we should not be making gametes from pluripotent cells. You're getting me to get out of the <laughs> again, Erin, thanks for that. But um, I certainly wouldn't start with a recipe that has TNT in it, my friend. That could have an explosive outcome. But enough of the puns. We're going to get to our conversation with Dr. Nicola Rivron in just a minute before we get there. I've got a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Looking for more information on organoids? Download Stem Cell Technologies' new ebook on organoid research techniques developed in collaboration with Wiley Publishing. This essential knowledge briefing details the evolution of organoid technologies from discovery to application, including discussion of key milestones and advances of the technology. A review of key publications and annotated reading lists provide further background on many of the topics covered. Download your copy at www.stemcell.com slash organoid ebook. All right, guys, today we have a terrific guest for you from the IMBA, that's the Institute of Molecular Biotechnology of the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna. 
we have principal investigator, Dr. Nicolas Rivron. I really don't even need to introduce him. He's a star in the field, really single-handedly, well, not single-handedly, with his group, along with other many uh, esteemed researchers, brought the embryo model into the fore. Uh, the Rivron group recreates embryonic development using mammalian stem cells in a dish to better understand the encoded principles of self-organization. And we're going to get into all that with him in just a second. Nicola, thank you again so much for joining us here on the show. Hi, everyone. It's very happy to be here. Yeah, welcome back. And I mean, let's just jump right into it. It's no secret that the modeling of embryo development in vitro has emerged as, in my mind, the hottest subfield in stem cell biology right now. I mean, I've gone so far as to say that if I was a trainee all over again in the field of stem cell biology, I'd be doing this. <laughs> this is what I would be working on. So, I mean, it's it's very prominent and it's in large part thanks to these amazing new technologies such as the human blastoids that your lab has developed. And the, the amazing thing about these technologies is that they're reproducible and scalable. So your nature paper on using human blastoids to actually model blastocyst development came out about two years ago. But why don't we start off actually just by recapping what your lab is working on right now to make some of these in vitro models even better? Yeah, so we know we started a few years ago to like uh, try to like reform uh, those those blastocyst like structures, and we started with the mouse one, and um, because because it was it was a complete model, we could like transfer it back into the mice. And um, it was it was a quite quite an exciting experiment, although it totally failed because uh, we were never able to to, to form a mouse. Uh, but you know, it 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 started something that you know, where we 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 started to think about what are like the minimal uh, principles that are necessary for like an embryo to actually develop, and we can use this this approach in order to better understand. Those, those principles that are so hard to grasp, you know? and so that was that was in a couple of years ago, and then 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 we moved to uh, to Austria, and there we uh, we 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 tried to to reproduce the uh, the same concept using human cells, and it does not happen often in life, but it turned out to be like relatively easy, in the sense that it it it, it happened quite fast. And uh, it happened uh, uh, with very high efficiency, and <clears throat> here we are—we are actually like standing on the shoulders of like many other labs because there was like so much work that was done before to capture uh, those so-called uh, naive uh, human pluripotent stem cells, and um, uh, <clears throat> we use those cells. And uh, here, this is the work of like uh, uh, three, four people, in fact. Uh, the the first one is. Uh, uh, Harunobu Kagawa, second one is uh, Alok Javali, uh, third one is Heidar, Heidar Ikoi, and the fourth one is uh, a trainer at that time that was doing her master uh, studies, which is uh, Teresa Sommer, and who is now still in the lab. And uh, those four people together, they just they just pull it off like very rapidly. And just 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 very surprising. Because uh, um, I, I still remember the first time uh, Alok Javali like like came back to us like saying uh, look guys i think i think there's something in the dish here and we're like okay no, that's, uh, 
it's not happening. Uh, just just do a triple staining of like those three cell types that are known to be inside the blastocyst, and you know, like we we'll check it out. And, and he came back like two days later with like you know like <laughs> the three cell types that popped out popped up in the in in those blastoids. And so that was that was very that was a very exciting moment. Yeah. So this is this is for like building the models. Yeah. And now now the question is more like you know like you know we are. I think the field is a little bit beyond like building those models. Um, there's still a lot that is being built, a, a lot, and 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 this is very this is very important that we have like you know a whole variety of models that are that are built that are complementary and more or less complete and and re representing different stages. Uh, but but we are like slowly drifting into you know like actually like doing good science with those models. Yeah. And uh, trying to answer like like proper questions that could not be answered until now, and you know there are there are many there are many questions that can be answered, but uh, I think in our case, you know, like what's what's very exciting is that we can uh, model the moment of implantation into the uterus, and um, <clears throat> because those blastocyst-like structures have like the the they are complete and they have the outer part. Uh, they can actually like be transferred into the uterus in the case of a mouse, uh, and we can like play with the model in order to like see uh, what what's necessary for it to develop. And uh, in the case of the human, they can be uh, put in interaction with uh, uterine cells in a dish. And we did this in 2021, and it it was very it was it was very surprising. That was probably like the second war moment in the lab because. Heydar Heydar Ikoy, he, he is, he, is um, uh, he did his PhD uh, on uh, endometrium organoids, which is the lining of the uterus, and he started developing uh, those those implantation assays, and <clears throat> he realized very quickly that uh, actually the blastoids uh, they could uh, very specifically interact with endometrial cells, uh, and they would only do this if they were stimulated before with uh, the hormones of pregnancy, uh, progesterone, estradiol, and also a wind inhibitor that we uh, that uh, Margarita Turco had, had, had found out before uh, that primes the cells for implantation. And it, it, so when, when Heda was depositing those blastoids onto those, those layers, nothing was happening except if you were stimulating them with hormones and, and this wind inhibitor. In that case, you had like about like 40% of the blastoids that attach. And then Hida went to the microscope and did some live imaging. And what you observed is that the blastoids, they not only attach, but they also roll around uh, and, they, and they find their way and they only attach via one side. And it's always the same side. And of course, this is known to be the sticky side of the human blastocyst. So you know, like there was like a very strong specificity, not only in the endometrial cells that had to be hormonally stimulated, but also with uh, the, the the blastoid that had formed spontaneously on axis and formed those sticky cells. And, and so that was, you know, like this is when we realized that we can really like start tackling like uh, like really interesting scientific questions. And there are a couple of of you know like. Sorry, I'm a bit long with that. But <laughs> a couple of controls that that we made on the side that that were quite interesting because uh, we we 
you, we really need to understand what those models are really doing and if those models are really recapitulating biology. And so when we saw that the, the human blastoids were attaching via only one side, it was it led directly to the hypothesis that the, the inner part of the embryo, the future fetus, is actually like signaling locally to the outer part of the uterus, which is the trophoblast, to make them mature and make them sticky. And one, one very good experiment that, 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 that we pulled off on, uh, I, I thought was really cool, is that we could inhibit the formation of those inner cells uh, by using a, a, hippo, a, a hippo overactivator, it's called XMU-MPO1, or a STAT inhibitor uh, called SC144. And in both cases, if we put this single molecule during blastoid formation, we actually don't form a blastoid, we form uh, an empty blastoid, a trophosphere. And, and when we deposited those trophospheres onto the hormonally stimulated endometrial cells, they were incapable of attaching. So it really fits, I don't, it really fits with the idea that, you know, the, the, at the very beginning of life, the, the, it's actually the, the inner part, uh, the future fetus, future embryo that is like instructing the, the outer part uh, that uh, is the, the future placenta, in fact, to become sticky locally and to implant into a specific direction into the uterus. You know? So this, this, this is a very interesting process in, uh, you know, like the, the, the mammalian embryo as, as a design uh, that, uh, that, was, that evolved in order to like form those outer cells uh, that are going to mediate the implantation into the uterus and later form the placenta. And um, by design, it is like pushing those cells to develop. Uh, and we found many factors that, that promotes this. And it is locally uh, directing those cells to, uh, to, to become sticky, to implant in the right direction into the uterus. So like, these are all kind of like, interesting like, things that, that, that we can now study in addition and one, one quite interesting aspect is that, in fact, the mouse and the mouse blastocyst is implanting via the opposite direction as compared to the human one. So, you know, these, those sticky cells that, that we are, I was telling you about, they actually form on the opposite side in the, in the mouse blastocyst as compared to the human one. So somehow during evolution, you know, the whole system has flipped around by about 180 degrees. And I still cannot put my head around this. You know, how is it possible that, you know, like somehow those embryos flipped around and still managed to develop and formed like this new way of, 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 of developing in, inside the uterus. You know, like this is one of like those, south, those, those jumps in evolution that for me is like completely uh, blowing my mind. So like, so this is, these are the kind of things that we can now like precisely like decipher in the dish here and then try to like look at, you know, all the signals, all the generogratory network, all the, you know, like the, the, the principles and, 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 and the evolution of this uh, uh, from this species to species. This is, yeah, this is, this is really cool, you know? Yeah, I mean, Cool is an understatement. And uh, that that to me is what's so exciting. What you just highlighted all that as someone who focuses on reproductive biology, 
is that the reproductive, the diversity of strategies for reproductive success across mammals, it's very broad, you know, even with closely related species, it's not like the heart where the pump is effectively the same across the board, you know, the, they, like you just described there, you can have these vastly different, you know, the, when the embryo implants, uh, what the poles are of the embryo during implantation. And these are all things that we never could really address um, without getting into that black box of the uterus. So that's one innovation that I think was broke open with these blastoids. But also, as you just alluded to there, with uh, the difference between mouse and human, you know, this is stuff that we can't even model these phenomena in, in, the, in the animals that we're accustomed to, or we can't model them in a way that actually recapitulates the human biology. So I think that's what's so amazing about this is not the, 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 the making an embryo per se, but trying to unpack the process of implantation using these as a model. And along those lines, I, I guess I'm, I don't wanna say disappointed, but it's frustrating for me, I guess, uh, that a lot of the reaction is so focused on making how late can these embryos go? Can we make organs? Is this going to be making humans in a brave new world type scenario incubators? Like a lot of the the hype and maybe scandal or or, or skepticism, whatever you want to call it, that that, that surrounds the work, um, I think is really missing the point that this is a, an amazing scientific tool. But I I I gotta ask. I mean, you had alluded to it. Um, in your intro there that, that that you could implant these in the mouse and and get implantation. I think a lot of people out there are waiting to see live and maybe fertile offspring derived from mouse embryo models implanted in foster mouse uterus. Maybe maybe these mice are even already alive and in review in some journal somewhere. But the, the published data suggests that as ordered as the embryo, embryo models look at peri-implantation stages, something goes off track. Do, do you have any ideas as to what the, the problem is there and how we can get over that obstacle to actually get live-born pups from these embryo models? Yeah, well, uh, I, I hope the, the mice are running somewhere. You know, like, uh, and I, you know I'm, I'm sure there are plenty, I hope there are plenty of, of people trying. This is This is not really like, a big focus of our lab. Uh, we we are more interested to like, you know, the the the, the questions relative to like implantation, but uh, clearly uh, we still need to understand what are the limitations of the model. So we are clearly like working on on those questions of why is it that it does not it does not develop to a certain stage at least uh, in utero, and uh, the the first thing that we realized is that um, the trophoblast stem cells that uh, we were using, uh, which have been derived by uh, Janet Ronson, uh, and uh, like that was in 1998, uh, are actually like beautiful cell lines, uh, but they are very heterogeneous. And uh, they comprise some subpopulations that are blastocyst-like, but also some subpopulation that are post-implantation-like. Mm. Uh, and there's actually like 10% of the cells that are already like very differentiated. They are almost, you know, like in, at the verge of like, you know, post-mitotic stage. You know? So what's one thing that we did uh, in the last few years, and uh, that was, we published the paper in 2022. Uh, this is the work of uh, Jean Wu Seong in the lab. 
along with uh, uh, a PhD student who is called uh, uh, Vicky uh, Rolsman. And uh, together, what they, what, they, what they found is that you can also capture um, uh, trophoblast stem cells in a more pristine stage that better reflects the uh, blastocyst trophectoderm. And <clears throat> we did this by uh, learning from the embryo, in fact, because what we observed initially is that when we form blastoids, from uh, trophoblast stem cells, the trophoblast become normalized uh, over time, meaning that they become more blastocyst-like over time. Uh, and we speculated that this is because they are in the presence of the embryonic cells that must be sending some signals. And um, so we actually like, looked at all the signals that are coming from the ombinic cells, and then we, we run some combinatorial screens on trophoblast stem cells using those molecules that come from the epiblast. And we found like uh, one combination that allows to capture uh, <clears throat> what we call trophectoderm stem cells. And those trophectoderm stem cells much better reflect the, the transcriptome of the, of the of the blastocyst trophectoderm, and they can form better blasto blastoids also. And what, what was interesting is that when we placed those blastoids, those new blastoids uh, within the uterus of mice, they started to implant at much higher levels. Uh, in the original publication, 2018, it was 8% meaning that 8% of the blastoids were actually like instructing the uterus in a proper way so that the uterus reacts by forming the cocoon around it, which is called the decidua. And uh, with those new version of blastoids made with trophectoderm stem cells, uh, it goes up to 20, 25%. When you do the same procedures with, uh, the same procedure with blastocyst, the real, th the real thing, uh, you are at 40% because of the surgical procedure, you know, like uh, not all of them are implanting. So, so, you know, we go from eight to 20, closer to 40. You know? And of course it becomes much easier for us because, you know, like the, we can get a lot more of the, those deciduous. So practically it's so much easier to analyze things and uh, we can, we can, and, and we can, you know, like can generate samples. So. And the second thing is that, we can. We started to look at, at the difference between uh, between those blastoid uh, 1.0 and 2.0, and what we what we observed is that um, in those trophectoderm stem cells, uh, they were upregulating a key homeodomain gene that is called CDX2, and that uh, when we analyze the chip sequencing data, uh, we saw that CDX2 is very strongly binding to Win6 and Win7b. And <clears throat> when, we, when we knocked out uh, do, those uh, genes uh, in the blastoid, those blastoids like dramatically decreased their efficiency of implanting and in, in instructing the uterus. So, and we, we did a couple of other experiments around this, but all this is pointing at the fact that, you know, in, in order to implant into the uterus, uh, the uh, the, blasto the blastocyst is producing Win6, Win7b that is, in, that is playing a major role in instructing uh, the, the uterus to decidualize. 
And very, very interestingly, like those molecules are also produced by the human blastocyst. Uh, so it's it's possible that there's a conserved process here by which, you know, like despite the opposite mode of implantation, there are some commonalities, uh, such as expression of wind into uh, decidualization. So this is this is one 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 thing that we that that helped us to like, you know, like bring blastoids to much higher efficiency of implantation. And the second thing is uh, the primitive endoderm. So there's a second extraminic tissue within the blastocyst, which is called primitive endoderm, and that is going to form the yolk sac. And in the, in the original uh, blastoid, uh, there was a primitive endoderm. There were the, actually the three lineages of the blastocyst, trophectoderm, epiblast, and primitive endoderm. But the number of primitive, primitive endoderm was very few, definitely less than what is normal. And if you don't have a primitive endoderm, we, we, we know by classi from classical embryology that you know, nothing will develop because this primitive endoderm is en encasing the epiblast and is promoting its development. So there was, uh, we, we actually like found new ways to boost the, for the, the formation of primitive endoderm. And, uh, and we published this in 2022 also, I think. And we can, we can like, to better extent, uh, uh, have a development of the, of the epiblast. But well, what we are very interested in is, is to understand what is the crosstalk now. What's, what makes the synergy between those extraomic tissues and, 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 and the epiblast. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> overall, you know, like we, we learn by doing, uh, and we, we, we find all kinds of defects in the original blastoid that you, we fix step by step. And, you know, hopefully somebody has fixed all those defects already and, and have like some mice running somewhere in a lab. And um, yeah, looking forward to read that paper. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. I mean, the fact that you're able to actually progress the development of these embryo models just by implanting them in vivo, that's just, that's just so fascinating to me. And just a million questions that are unlocked from that capability it's just as somebody just who's outside of the field i'm just blown away that this is actually possible so i'm just so excited to to listen to that i guess shifting a, away from the science for a little bit i wanted to talk about you know a recent development in the field that's non-science really i guess it's tangential of course we had the iscr annual meeting not too long ago um you're of course involved with the iscr and drafting some of the the guidelines for early embryo models, for example. And it was just a case point in how prevalent this subfield of stem cell biology has become is reflected in the very first plenary talk of the conference from Magdalena Zerdinka Goetz, who of course you know pretty well, where she presented some of her recent work. Um, and we kind of know what happened next. After that presentation, there was a, a number of other preprints that got released online during the course of the conference. And it's it's just such a huge flow and influx of data that's coming out from these studies. And oftentimes they're happening all at the same time. Things are getting pretty competitive to be, to be honest with you. I mean, we had Jacob Hanna's group who also published a similar work and, you know, had their preprint go up as well. I mean, things are very fast moving and very competitive in some situations. What are your thoughts on the pace of the field of how quickly and rapidly it's progressing? 
I think like, well, it's important that there's like a lot of groups that are involved. And because by having multiple groups, then uh, we can, we can, you know, like progress better and we can actually like form different types of models, but also, um, you know, try to understand what the models are, are forming. Uh, and, and we need to like, we need to set, set up like very good standards in the field. We need to make sure that um, we are producing the right sales at the right moment and that those sales uh, pattern and form uh, the right tissues in uh, the correct way. So there's, there's a lot of, it's, it's super important that uh, we, <clears throat> we actually like um, are able to uh, really understand uh, the, the, the structures and the sales that are formed. Uh, so for, for this, there is like a tool that, that is super powerful. It's, it's a single cell transcriptomic, of course. And this became a standard for everybody to do a single cell uh, RNA-seq to the minimum. And, uh, but but there's, a, there's very few references that we can uh, benchmark our models to. So there's, there's like a very important need for uh, developing like good reference maps of uh, human uh, embryonic development uh, at the single cell level. Um, <clears throat> this is going to be absolutely crucial to understand, um, you know, what the models are forming and uh, to which extent uh, they can uh, they can be useful to to do science. But be, but beyond beyond the single cell transcriptomic, there's also like a lot of need for uh, doing uh, better quantitative morphometric studies uh, to understand, you know, at the single cell level, um, what uh, how the cells how similar the cells that are formed and the tissue that are formed are to uh, the real thing. Of course, for humans, uh, for human embryos, it's extremely complicated there. Um, but once we have uh, designed uh, proper ways for human embryos to develop in the dish, uh, those IVF embryos that are uh, generously donated by those couples that have you know, finished their uh, uh, parental project, uh, we can, you know, we can try to like grow those uh, human blastocysts in a dish and for them to form the right cells the, uh, at the right time and the right tissues in the right places. And then get some very good morphometric data from those, uh, uh, those uh, in vitro grown uh, blastocysts and to do some high content imaging. Uh, and we can, we can obtain like, like very large data from this high content imaging, uh, literally like hundreds of parameters per cell and draw again those maps uh, in order to like you know like nicely understand what uh, what's happening here, so this is this is this is something that I think as a field like we we really need to like establish um, uh, in the next you know in the next couple of years and there are already like quite some people who are making efforts into into doing this and we need to re re we need to reinforce this here. Um, 
you know, like the models that are no, they are only going to be, uh, you know, they they are they are going to be useful if if they recapitulate if we know what they recapitulate. So it, it's not that they have to recapitulate everything, but we have to know what they recapitulate. And once we know, this allows to focus the science um, and to like answer like those questions that that, that we are after. So. So you know, like it's working progress, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I can only imagine the kind of progress you got going on in your lab right now. But I want to get down to something you know specifically clinical. I know your interest is in self organization, just the phenomenon of self organization in systems, um, and you're focused on this peri implantation stage and the cell cellular interactions. And you elaborated there on the education, so to speak, that the ICM gives to both the trophectoderm and the interaction there with the primitive endoderm. These are all cells that are present in uh, in vitro fertilization, right? And, and the, these, this uh, culture period that the embryos undergo before tra transfer back into the uterus. Are you investigating in that you have this this model and you've already gleaned some insight into the signaling between uh, how do you apply that clinically to in vitro culture of human embryos i mean can you i feel like you could do that right now do you have any kind of facet or your, your research lab that's just really focused on that translational approach yeah yeah to totally like so so you know like every year in the lab we have like the the carrier meeting like in in many labs and um, in 2021, uh, Alok Javali, who uh, was one of the co-first authors on the uh, 2021 paper, he, he came to he came into the, to my office and uh, he was like, you know, like I'm not completely sure if if I can actually like do like continue to do science for the rest of my life because at that time what he, his reasoning was that you know he wanted he's Indian and he wanted to go back to India at some point and he thought you know it's not going to be like super feasible for me to to actually like go back to India and do stem cell research because it requires a lot of money and yeah. so you know I'm, I'm I'm actually thinking about like doing like something more translational and uh, more entrepreneurial and uh, you know I was like yeah well, you know. <laughs> Why don't you try? You know, <laughs> and we actually like spent spent quite some time uh, since then. And uh, he has set up a, a company uh, that uh, is still in the making, uh, but uh, that I think is is doing very well, and that is using uh, blastoid technology uh, along with uh, implantation uh, assays, as we developed previously in order to tackle uh, clinical problems. And Alok is, a, is actually the managing director of the company, you know, and he's, he's running the show over there. He's, he's, he's absolutely amazing, that guy. And so uh, we are having a very good time because we are, we, we've, we've discussed tremendously with uh, clinicians in the field in order to like understand what, are, what can be done and what, what, how we can help and uh, we we came up with like a couple of uh, clear problems and uh, started started screening, and so uh, we we are actually like in the process of testing a couple of uh, a couple of 
things that came out from blastoid research in the uh, preclinical setting at the moment. Uh, so he is uh, he has like teamed up with a, uh, a couple of, of, of clinicians and uh, uh, he's actually like already like working on, on seeing how predictive human blastoids are of human blastocysts. <laughs> I think we're going to get some surprises here yeah, because um, also, we, we can easily find a lot of principles. We can easily find a lot of molecules, but uh, you know, like going through the whole process of uh, uh, of of you know, actually like getting to contribute to uh, the clinical world is 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 a long, long way. Yeah. But yeah, if there's one person we can do it, is definitely Alok Javelin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, is is um you know you, i think you you have to like a little you have to know uh why you're actually doing this because it's a tremendous effort uh to set up those uh more translational aspects uh in the case in in our case it's uh, because i really want to know if blastoids are good enough to contribute to clinical research and for me, like uh, proving that blastoids, uh, the science that comes out from blastoid uh, research is good enough to uh, contribute to clinical research would be a big, big uh, plus. You know, it would mean that somehow the models are good. You know? So, you know, like we don't know where this is going. But uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, and uh, and Alok is pretty geared up, you know. So <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess again, a lot of fun is an understatement. Just as a third party listening to you talk about this stuff, it gets me excited, you know. And I think it's actually a good time now to talk about some of the the guidelines, right? So you've been involved in developing some of the. ISSCR guidelines and recommendations concerning research on human embryo models formed from stem cells and actually had this stem cell reports article on the topic a few years ago. I mean, as you just alluded to, for example, your colleague from India, the stem cell research community is an international one. And researchers from the different parts of the world are subject to different laws and different regulations, especially when it comes to this specific type of work. So tell us why it's really important to have guidance on what should be considered appropriate or not when it comes to this sort of early embryo modeling work. And also maybe what's the next step when it comes to the the, the evolution of these guidelines yeah i know this is so this is more my part you know like <laughs> this and uh, and I, I put i put a lot uh, a lot of thoughts into this because i think it's super important and it's it's also very interesting because it brings you to a different space you know we just talked about the clinical space uh and but this ethic those ethical aspects it it brought me to this to discuss with ethicists, with philosophers, with um, uh, people in the regulatory space, and this this really opens up your your mind and and your views on, on things. It has that has been like extremely interesting. And the first thing is that you know like so in in two thousand eighteen when uh, when we published the mouse blastoids, we um, uh, we we very rapidly gathered a couple of people in order to 
think about those issues. And here, I have to give credit to a couple of uh, more senior people in the field who uh, really like put some efforts into uh, making us think about this. Uh, and I'm talking about uh, uh, Martin Perra. I'm talking about uh, Janet Ronson. I'm talking also about uh, Amanda Clark. And um, they actually like gathered a, a bunch of people within the ISSER to think about those questions. And this uh, lasted for two years. For two years, we had like dozens of discussions with um, people all around the world. It was about like 15 people. And uh, we, we thought, okay, um, we need to like come up with like an update of the guidelines that tackles the urgent questions. And uh, one um, one of them, and the reason I was invited, it was 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 that we knew that human blastoids would be on the way. Of course, they were on the way in my lab, and they were on the way in in, in multiple other labs. And um, we wanted the ethics to be done in parallel of the science. And it turned out to be like very successful because uh, in 2021, the year where the uh, human blastoids were published. Um, the guidelines also came out. And in those guidelines, there were a couple of things that, that we, we said. The first thing is that uh, this research um, should be, um, should have an ethical oversight. And especially uh, the research of what we called integrated embryo models, which are models that comprise uh, the two extremity tissues and that might develop, uh, when improved, might possibly develop into uh, a fetus, the model that would develop into the fetus. And uh, this type of research should be like, you know, like uh, supervised by uh, the same type of committees that uh, is used for uh, human embryos. On the contrary, there's non-integrated models, and those ones, there are, they are less ethical concerns, and they can be supervised by, uh, by the committees, but don't need to, be, to have an authorization to do this. Yeah. And the second thing uh, that, that, that we mentioned is that uh, we, should, we should prohibit that human embryo models are transferred into uh, any uterus, whether this is animal or human. And those, those rules that are ICCR guidelines actually came out you know, right on time. And it, it was super important that you know, those things are done, are done in parallel. And there are a couple of other additional things that, that we put, but, but these were probably like the most, uh, the most important ones. And, and si since then, to, to answer your question, uh, we, we also kept on thinking about what are the next things to do. And um, we have like a paper that should come out in the, in the next few weeks uh, about this, and uh, that uh, tackles a couple of, of, uh, of important questions for us. The first one is um, to understand um, why do we consider that embryo models are not embryos? It seems quite trivial for, for scientists, but you know, like thinking a bit more deeply about it uh, is showing that uh, we must refine the definition of the human embryo. 
and we we came up with like a couple of thoughts of how should we define those those those, those human embryos and um you know we we know we know for a long time already that uh, embryos can can be formed not only by fertilization but also by other means they can be formed by somatic cell nuclear transfer they can also be formed uh, by um transferring a set of chromosomes in, into a, an embryo, at least in the mouse. Uh, they can also be formed uh, by uh, forming uh, uh, gametes in vitro from stem cells and fertilizing those gametes in a dish. And now we know that they can also potentially be formed by uh, just self-organizing stem cells. So, you know, like, the question is when uh, so how should we consider all those different type of 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 embryos and um what my my thought is that you know we we should consider them as embryos as long as they are capable of forming a fetus and that uh, if this is proven uh, then automatically um, the structure uh, tips over and 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 becomes and fully entitled to be you know like legally quite similar to to a, to a human embryo so you know the question is uh, how when you know when would those embryo models eventually tip over to become embryos this is not we are not close to it but I think we should start thinking about, about, about this. And of course, because we cannot transfer uh, embryo models into a uterus, we cannot do the, the ultimate test. You know? So, so we, we have to find ways around this. And what, what we'd like to propose is some, some Turing test you know, by, uh, the, uh, by the name of uh, Alan Turing who was like, designing those tests for uh, uh, for computers uh, and artificial intelligence you know like it was like thinking of okay you know like if an if a, a blinded uh, uh, tester uh, can uh, ask questions to a machine and uh, be fooled by the machine by thinking that he's actually talking to a human being then the machine has a level of intelligence that is sufficient to you know like uh, to give it credit yeah. and we so we, we, are, we are trying to think of like Turing test for embryo models that uh, by which we could biology, biologically test those embryo models in order to uh, to see if uh, they pass uh, they pass those uh, those tests yeah. and so they are like they are like two tests that that we have in mind uh, and the, the first one would be, of course, uh, if those models could develop uh, efficiently and faithfully in a dish until a certain point. And if, the, if this is happening, uh, then you have a certain level of certainty about, uh, about the quality of your model. Um, and here the question is, when do we actually like stop the in vitro experiments? Um, and this would probably have to be a compromise between, you know, like the longer you, you wait, the more sure you are about the, the, your model, uh, but you don't want to wait too long so that uh, you run into ethical problems. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so that's, that's probably the first Turing test. 
And, but I don't think this is sufficient for embryo models to tip over because you really want to know if they are already going uh, far enough to form a fetus and eventually to uh, have the capacity to form a neonate. Yeah. So I think next to this, there's a second Turing test that we can think of, which would be if a similar embryo model in an animal would be able to, uh, to form uh, you know, a living fertile animals. Uh, and here, of course, we can start with mice, but mice are very different from humans. So I think there's a necessity to like put the bar a little bit higher uh, and to think of recapitulating uh, full embryogenesis with species that are closer to humans, such as pigs and uh, non-human primates. And if um, if an embryo model is capable of forming living fertile pigs, living fertile uh, um, non-human primates, uh, then the second Turing test, uh, in my view, is passed. And if the two Turing tests are passed for a specific embryo model, then you know I, I would tend to think that this specific embryo model should probably tip over and be legally considered similar, if not uh, equal to, uh, to a human uh, embryo. And after there can be multiple additional layers uh, to, to, be, uh, to be added to this. Um, it's not because you are legally considered uh, an embryo that uh, you can do everything uh, with, an, with, with such an embryo. For example, the somatic cell nuclear transfer embryos uh, are considered embryos, but uh, they cannot be used for reproduction. Um, but they can be they can be used for research in in, in some countries. Yeah. So we would have to like then think about what we actually do with those uh, embryo models potentially turned embryos, and uh, and you know like establish additional uh, layers of regulation in order to know. You know what is acceptable and what is not, and I think, it, for example, it's it's clear to everybody that it's not acceptable to transfer those embryo models into a uterus, uh, because you know it's probably going to it's 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 going to develop abnormally and it's it could harm the gestational uh, uh, carrier, such as you know like in the case of molar pregnancy or ectopic pregnancy, you know, uh, but. It could be that we that they are still allowed for research uh, because these are important uh, models, and uh, even if they are legally considered similar to an embryo, uh, we still consider that you know they, they they should still be used for you know finding drugs, uh, uh, finding improving IVF or, or such such things. Yeah. So so these these are these are the things that that we are currently thinking of. You know, like what. What, uh, what is the definition of an embryo? Can we actually refine it based on uh, uh, in the light of embryo models? Uh, once we have this refined definition, can we use it in order to define precise tipping points for when eventually embryo models would become uh, embryos, uh, legally speaking? And what are the Turing tests for doing so? And then finally, uh, what are the different additional uh, regulations that we want to put in place 
to ensure that uh, the use of those embryo models uh, is you know following uh, ethical uh, uh, ethical guidelines and, and 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 carving an ethical path that would maximize benefits to society so these yeah these are now the things that we are thinking of now yeah you've got a very narrow scope right not thinking big at all but um <clears throat> the the impressive thing to me i mean everyone gets so caught up in the humanness or the embryoness uh properly as you said this turing test for the embryos are important i think a lot of experiments to come are going to flesh that out but uh whether or not these things can create a fertile you know fertile being um in whatever species uh the the maxim holds george box you know all models are wrong some are useful and i think that's that's the the key innovation here with uh, your blastoid and all the embryo models that have followed is that you kicked open a door that now we can ask all these questions. All these things you've talked about are, are things that were totally inscrutable, impenetrable. Uh, and now we've got experiments that we're designing to get there. So I think the the progress has been tremendous and it's very exciting. But what's more important to me as a, as someone who's studied embryology my whole adult life is that we're finally seeing these things uh, firsthand and are able to exert the power of observation and experimentation on them. So very impressed and appreciative of your seminal contribution, Nicolas. Before we let you go here, we're going to ask you a couple of peripheral questions. Um, the first one is uh what's uh, one piece of advice you've been given professional or not uh that you would like to pass along yeah um <clears throat> yeah i didn't i didn't really think too much about it i have to say but but so yeah we can uh, maybe doing it on the fly is it's a good way to like get the you know the things that is on uh that i think is important here yeah. I, I think there's like you know, there's there's a lot right now. There's a lot of hype in this field, and there's a lot of like uh, competition also. But you know, like first, you know, we we have to make sure that we do things right, uh, and um, and we have to make sure that that we do things well, and <clears throat> we have to. We have to make sure that you know, like the next, the, the people that are that are that are working on on those embryo models in the labs are actually like enjoying it and and really like be being are being driven by you know the science, yeah, like the the hardcore science, the the will the will to do to do discoveries, you know, like so. So I, I'll give one quote. <laughs> I'll give one quote from Janet Rosson, who is like you know like always very insightful and uh, you know like i remember her like telling me you know like yeah you know like you know blastoids blastoids can be can be nice if they form a mouse but most importantly you know like you have to fill the gaps in knowledge you know you, you have to you have to like use this this system in order to like you know fill the, the little gaps that 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 needs to be filled in embryology you know it's kind of like you know there's like if you like represent like knowledge in the form of like 
you know, a three-dimensional tree with like the, the, the core, the core is like what we really know. We know and we are standing on, on this knowledge and there's no way that we can actually like challenge this, you know. And uh, I think this is very important to remember that there is this core knowledge, you know, and uh, uh, that's, you know, like, uh, we we are standing we are standing on this and this is firm. But then after there's like the branch the branches you know that are like you know like becoming uh, more and more spaced, and and this is this is what I think she meant meant by uh, filling knowledge gaps. It's not necessarily it's not necessarily like the you know like the the most edgy uh, edgy questions in science but it's super important that we actually like understand this like very 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 finely and very that we feel the, we we feel those gaps you know and this is this is this you know what i was talking about win six win seven b you know like well you know this is classical signaling you know this is not there's nothing like super edgy about about this but this is this is really important we need to like use this in order to like on this you know like understand the the the, the basics here and then after if you look at the very external part of of, the, of this three-dimensional tree of knowledge you know then there's the, the thing that is really at the edge here and you know here there's 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 quite a few things that that, that can be that can be answered and you know like we are certainly like Tackling, uh, we think we are we are tackling some of those questions, but um, you know, like finding a good question is 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 very complicated, though. and uh, you know, like uh, it takes a lot of years. So my, yeah, my advice would be just you know, like be happy, like filling the knowledge gaps, just like Janet said, and uh, you know, over the years you're going to find those. Uh, cutting edge questions that are the tip of knowledge here you know, and then it's going to become even more fun you know, so yeah just enjoy the process <laughs> any advice from Janet Rassan I think is worth considering that's for sure um, and finally uh, if, if you weren't doing what you do in the lab as a scientist uh, what do you think you'd be doing with your life oh yeah yeah, I'm thinking a lot about my retirement, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, like, no, I, I'm very happy doing science. I'm very happy doing science, but I'm, I'm, I'm also, I'm also very happy like changing fields. And um, so this is probably like, you know, I would consider this, this as a different job. <laughs> so it would still, be, it would still be in science. But uh, but I'm very happy to like venture from from one place to another because it, it, it you you learn so much from this you know. Uh, so you know I, I was I was trained as as an engineer. Uh, I, I did my you know PhD in the field of tissue engineering, which is very far from you know what I'm doing now. Then then we ventured into 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 embryology and stem cells, and now we are now you know I'm becoming I'm becoming very interested in evolution, and. Um, into like, you know, like <clears throat> what are the main drivers of of this divergence between species, and how this might have impacted uh, the different ways that embryos formed, uh, and uh, what makes human embryology so so frail as compared to other species? Uh, why is it why is it so that you know like humans are are are, are, are so 
are so suboptimal in, the, in, in, in doing so. So I, I wouldn't call this a different job, but I would certainly <laughs> be very excited about like venturing into like into this type of space. You know, like uh, sorry for not answering the question. <laughs> no, that's an answer. Third act in uh, Evo Devo. I, I can't wait to see. I mean, you've already blown our collective minds uh, with your science. I, I can't wait to see what comes of your theory, Nicola. Uh, but I guess I'll have to wait a bit longer because you still got some work to do with them blastoids and embryoid models, my friend. Uh, and we can't wait to have you back on the show soon enough to tell us how that pans out. But for now, we're finished and uh, very grateful for sharing, you know, just your thoughts, your journey, your process and, and all of it. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Thanks so much. And thanks for doing this. It's awesome. All right, you guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. This has been a great episode. Until the next time, thank you so much for listening.